I want to continue because I feel that these stories that I'm telling are very important for South Africans and particularly the South Africans that came in after 1994, after our first elections and who we call the born freeze. And I think the more they know about the past, the better you know they can actually understand our history better. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Hello, everybody. We're here today for a follow-up conversation with Enver Samuel as part of our postscript moment. Enver, you look as if you're in exactly the same place you were last time we talked, your office and your home. Am I right? You're 100% correct. And I think even the weather's similar. <laughs> Bright, sunny day in Johannesburg. Oh, that sounds really, really good. So last time we talked, you were about to head off to Singapore um, for your your first marathon in Singapore. So tell us a little bit about that. Was it as hot as we thought it might be? It was extremely hot. And I think it was the great leveler because um, it's the first time I've done a marathon that started so early. I think we started around about 5 a.m. Or was it 4 a.m., which is some ridiculous time. Obviously, just try to escape the heat, but it was an enjoyable experience to run uh, through the city of Singapore at that time with all the neon lights. But but it started to rain, and it seemed to make the humidity level go up another notch. And the first twenty-one k's was a breeze, and the second twenty-one k's was like like something grabbed me by the shoulders and said, hang on, you didn't actually factor in this humidity. And the second half was really, really a slog because I did not expect that type of heat and humidity. But I did finish and I was very chuffed. So is that on your list <laughs> you again or uh, once done, that's it forever? Um, I think for me, uh, at this stage, it's like once done and then what is the next one and which place can I visit that will will be another experience to be there, but um, to do a different um, type of marathon. So what what is, I mean, there must be a calendar, an annual calendar of all these big marathons. So what's next? What's next in your sights? So there definitely is a calendar and they talk about the, you know, like we have game in South Africa with the big five. They talk about the big five. And those are, for example, New York Marathon, Boston Marathon, the Berlin Marathon, and one or two others. And so I think I'll try the London Marathon. But I mean, I deliberately chose Singapore because because I didn't want to do start off with the big five. Like, like I have on the map, I have the Victoria Falls Marathon, I'd like to do the Great Wall of China Marathon, you know. So uh, for some reason, I, I want to do those type of ones before I look at the big five. And Sydney Marathon, too. I, I'd, leave, I'd love to do the Sydney Marathon. I think you definitely should, because I can definitely come and watch you and cheer you on in Sydney. <laughs> A little bit more difficult to get to any of those other places, although, you know, I'm game, obviously. Um, yes. <laughs> but Sydney, definitely. 
And talking of the the big five, we were talking off camera that you've just been to a game park for a holiday. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes. So, uh, you know, there's some po- points during your work that you, you really feel that it's starting to consume you and take over your life. And we're fortunate here in South Africa that that when moments like that come, that you can choose to go to destinations that allow you to pause and reflect. And there's no better place, in my opinion, to go to, but to what we call the Kruger National Park. Kruger National Park, I think they say is the size of Texas, the way it's so big. From the north to the south is is almost um, shy of 400 kilometers. And um, in the Kruger National Park, if you do the journey, which we did, we, we started in the north and we went down right to the south. Um, you see the the, the change of um, the geography of the landscape. The north is more if you're a bird lover. And, and as you progress further down south, then you start encountering all the animals, the big five. Um, and we chose to do it um, in the camping sites. So it seemed to make it even extra special because you you much closer, you know, like you literally in the camping sites, then there's a fence and then the other side is, is the wildlife. And you can you can choose to do that, which seems to bring nature much closer. Um, so there's nothing better than listening to those sounds. And it's not the not just the roar of the lion, but but just those sounds of silence and nature which takes over and the light the beautiful uh, sunsets and sunrises gives you time to pause and reflect and almost start anew when you get back um, to your normal busy life i love that and i i mean i remember i've been to kruger and and other game parks and it's not it's never silent is it actually but it's a different kind of noise there's a hum and there's different different animals talking to each other and you know the insects and the heat you can kind of hear the heat as the sun goes down it's really really peaceful it's a different kind of music isn't it that takes you out of your everyday life yes definitely it's it's a symphony of sounds but a symphony of sounds that are not related to technology and you know what we we experience in the city and i guess it's it's going back to where we originate from because 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 that's how it began you know um and um yeah there's just something so special about it you know to see it all there because it literally if you're looking at a scene or a landscape it's unchanged and it's and you can say that this is how it would have looked 500 years ago 200 years ago this is how it looked and this is how it still looks do you yes. did you find um, you know there's a lot of talk about climate change and biodiversity loss and what have you and obviously Kruger has been around for a long time and as they spend a lot of time and money and effort to protect the you know the plants the landscape the animals um, were there any signs of any impact or changes from climate change? I think you can see that definitely. If you've had the luck or the privilege to to have been going to the park for a number of years, and, and because because my parents are into that, 
um, you know, we've gone to the Kruger Park from from a young age, um, spanning decades. So I can see that there are some things that are very, very different. And I think one of the biggest thing is is the flow of the rivers. Like there are many um, spots where you, where you say, but where's the river? Like because it's just like a little like a little pond or you know like or there's no water at all i mean some of them are seasonal rivers but but even even though you know like the huge ones and the big ones they don't seem to be flowing like they used to like you you could see that these are big major rivers and for me i think that is the um, the biggest you know when, when you talk about climate change the the biggest thing that was noticeable yeah and is that is that high on the agenda, kind of politically and socially in South Africa? You know, the impact that Africa as a continent really is is sort of feeling in terms of, you know, particularly global north. They talk about global north and the pollution and and what have you. Is that something high on the on the list of priorities? I would say I think unfortunately not. There obviously is talk and discussion about it. You see it. But you don't see it as like for a uh, center stage issue. And I think in South Africa and like on the continent, unfortunately, there's so many other things that are taking, you know, the center stage that climate change and issues like that seem to, to be further down the ladder. You know, when we're talking about things like poverty and unemployment and our newest bugbear, the electricity problem, I think climate change, unfortunately, is relegated to the to the back room. But there is awareness of it, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's a common situation. I think uh, almost every country is in a similar situation where there are immediate pressing concerns that seem to take a lot of the effort and the investment from the environment and, you know, other kind of environmental issues. And I, you know, I was wondering how that was being balanced in, in places like South Africa, where, you know, the effect of, of poverty and unemployment and, you know, debt are so all consuming sad to hear that it's you know it's the common story really that there's just no room there's no headspace to think about the longer term because the more immediate uh, urgent things uh, get more they get more news coverage they get more political coverage so yeah. last time we spoke you were um you were starting to launch your latest documentary murder in paris and i i see from following you since then that you've been you know to a number of different countries for um for showings i don't know what they call it premieres i guess so tell us a little bit about how that's gone so you know in march we had a screening in paris and amsterdam and quite a few local screenings and in fact tomorrow i have a screening at the French embassy for the for the new ambassador. It's been going very well. It's, it's sort of a culmination of, of us trying to follow up on the broadcast because it was broadcast um, a while ago, but we didn't want it, that to be the be-all and end-all. We wanted to continue with it, its outreach program or impact campaign. Um, and I think we're doing that quite successfully because... Um, 
next week, I think it's on the 29th of August, we um, we have Dalcy September and her family receiving a huge award uh, here in South Africa and it, it, it sort of directly related to to the impact that the documentaries made because, you know, the, the people that are giving the award, they found out about Dalcy September through the, the documentary and, and its impact campaign and all the sort of, you know, we, through the documentary and impact campaign, we've made her, her, her name um, very present in today's environment because her name was virtually forgotten. So it's rewarding to know that, you know, something that you made has resonance even after it had its main sort of uh, goal, which was to be broadcast, but still is kind of, I call it, I call it, it's still living, you know, it still has presence. That's amazing. That must make you very proud. Yes, and it and, and it makes me want to continue along this avenue. So I think we did talk about a little bit about that on the next project, which was the six one hour documentaries on the South African TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I've finished the first two and I've um, shot the next two, which we're actually editing from next week. And and We've had test screenings with the first two with the families together with the Foundation for Human Rights who have facilitated those screenings because the content of these documentaries where the families basically let me into their life of grief because their brother, their sister, their son or daughter or their their parent was killed in the most brutal fashion during apartheid by the security police. And they talk about that incident of their disappearance, of their torture, literally like like it happened last night. So they, I felt it was very important for them not to just watch this on 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 the national broadcaster. I I, I call him and said, you know, by the way, watch on the first of June, for example, at eight p.m. I felt that they had to come and view and take it in, but view under very controlled circumstances. So the Foundation for Human Rights got a counsellor, very experienced counsellor, Bishop Paul Varane, to mediate the viewing uh, or facilitate the viewing. So they were counselled prior to the viewing, during the viewing and after the viewing. So a particularly poignant moment to see how the families watched and how they cried and how they, most importantly, how they felt at the end that this was a little bit of a tribute to their loved one, but also at the same time is making South Africans aware of the sacrifices that these people made for this country as it exists today. Wow. That must be extremely emotional for you as well. You know, I mean, we talked last time we met about um, your kind of, not fascination, but your empathy and your wanting to understand what sits behind. And it, what strikes me about those stories is that during that time, there was very little information. You know, it was before the internet, it was before mobile phones, you know, a lot of those things happened where there was state controlled information and there was whispers, but, but people would disappear and you wouldn't know anything, you know, wouldn't know anything about them. And so, you know, yes, they may have found out more information and through the truth and reconciliation um, process, they would have got some answers. 
but it's not it's not out there for the world um and so those voices were silenced which was part of the regime's strategy right we see that all around the world even now um and so you know what I, what I was thinking when you were talking is that for those families, it's finally an end to the silence about, you know, what happened to them, what happened to their loved ones. And, you you know, you're giving them that voice and that platform to kill that silence, which is, mm. which is incredible. Exactly. Because um, a big focus of the series is, um, is transgenerational trauma, and and the majority of the stories are being told through um, through the child, to the child's eyes. The child, some 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 instances were were as young as three months old when their father or mother was killed. Some were five years old, and so they actually have memory. Um, you know, it varies, uh, but but what it allows them to do is look back into the past um but mo more importantly so so you know they don't become just historical stories through the child's eyes or the brother or sister um they become almost living testimonies of of the past the present because it's how that affected their lives um in the past and how it's affecting their lives today and how is it going to affect their lives in the future? Most importantly, did my father or mother die um, in vain to a certain extent? When you look at some of the socio um, economic and political um, trials and tribulations we're facing today, because it's the same uh, ANC led government that these heroes and heroines died for and for for me i don't think when they were fighting um, for freedom that that you know if you look around see some of the things that are happening in south africa i don't think that they would foresee that this is what we fought for um you know yeah so they're yeah, particularly in yeah, yeah particularly important and powerful stories because they're not just about um, the past. They become very present through the eyes of the child. There's that lost opportunity, isn't there? Also, you know, um, people will put up with in amazing things if they feel optimistic that it's worth it. Um, and then there, you know, there's the disappointment um, when you sort of reflect and and you think, well, I'm not sure this is what I dreamed of when I put that effort and that sacrifice in, or you know, when my parents or my family members sacrificed so much. There's also a lot of lessons there for the for the future, aren't there? Really, because you know, the value of storytelling is that you can you can ignore the context or you know, when things were actually a lot of the messages from the stories, a lot of the experiences would be either the same now or they will be the same in the future unless something fundamentally changes. And so how do we learn the lessons of, you know, what's been done in the past, what people have experienced and that and that utter disappointment um, in, in, in order to get something better into the in the future? Yeah, 
I guess, so one of the positive spinoffs I saw was, you know, besides the families um, appreciating that this was giving a voice to to their loved one, um, uh, you know, giving them an opportunity to, because when people, there's generally a move of people saying, but let's, let's look to the, to the present and the future now, because the past is the past, but you can't, um, for these families, you, you, you get a window into, you, you can't move forward if you haven't addressed the issues of their trauma that they're living with in the present. So, so, so they need to, in order for them to move forward, they need to address that trauma and, um, and it hasn't been addressed. So, so to a certain extent, this, these documentaries have given them or become like a vehicle for them to address those issues. We had, we had um, like a mother and a son talking about the death of the, the father or the husband, like at, at a, level that they hadn't done in three decades you know you'd think that they would have done it but they said no we, we you know decades just went by and we'd never actually addressed it never talked about it because we just didn't want to go there but through this through some of these documentaries we actually gave them that sort of cathartic experience of talking about it and talking about it in depth um which they said was like a weight off their shoulders um you know um so yeah uh that's when you feel that okay i'm doing something that is um you know worth worth uh, carrying on with because because it has such a strong impact it's a it's a very um, important topic in New Zealand um, with sort of colonial the colonial history, um, and you know one of the, the the things that causes a lot of people a lot of difficulty is that recognition that you have to understand and uh, acknowledge the past and the trauma, the intergenerational trauma that is still continuing and has affected people's futures um, as much as their past and their present before you can collectively move forward. Um, I think it's mm. very much a common drive to put the past in a box and look to the future. Um, but you can only put the past in a box if you haven't had that trauma um, or it only stays in that box for so long and then it comes out in different ways. Um, so, you know, that is a very um, significant topic for New Zealand society, as I know it is in a whole lot of a lot of other countries where there was, uh, you know, colonization and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sort of the general today, the present is built on colonization and everything that came after that. Um, and, you know, somehow there has to be uh, a sort of a reckoning, a reconciliation and acknowledgement of that in order to collectively move forward or else you stay in those sort of in those lines where you have that divide because you've never managed to bridge that divide by that recognition and that discussion and that acknowledgement. Yeah, and, and I think it's incredibly short-sighted of people not to factor in those 
elements and issues, you know, because uh, because all those issues of colonialism and um, have sort of um, lasting impact that is even felt today. I remember my first time coming to Australia for my to do my degree in Perth, 1990. I think it was June, and you know, um, seeing the legacies of that. It, up to 1990, in terms of when I interacted with the Aboriginal com community and or saw issues around that in the national press and the tele and television, and being absolutely shocked that you know that was the the you know the 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 circumstances of their plight. But which, if you then I started to read about it and and learn more about it. Um, through the works of people like John Pulger, I think it was, um, and then you know discover the the you know things like um, extermination policy and and you know um, and and um, you know and then the, the thing about taking the children and bringing them up in the churches or, or mission stations. You know, I mean, like, and then that's why I think to a certain extent in, in 1990, I was still seeing the legacy of all that trauma and abuse and, um, you know, there, right there live in in, 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 in a Western first world nation. Um, you know, so, so like, if, and then the same thing would be applicable to New Zealand. Um, and and then for people to just not consider that past is really narrow-minded um, because it has an influence even today. And I mean, I've just finished a book called The Kaiser's Holocaust, which is about German uh, Germany's um, takeover of uh, Namibia, which was then called Southwest um, Africa, I think, Southwest Africa. Um, and and what they did there with the with the local Herero um, tribes was all the precursor to the things that were going to happen to the Jews in the Second World War. They practiced it in in, in Southwest Africa, um, you know. So again, uh, policy of extermination of the local indigenous tribes and um, concentration camps, and um, so. So you cannot pretend those things didn't happen and you cannot pretend that those things don't have an influence on on what happened 100 years later, you know, um, and, and how living with that legacy of that trauma can still have an impact in today's world. Definitely. So I, I can see that if that those are the topics that you've been delving into, why you needed a complete break, um, because those, I mean, I know um, I used to work um, with asylum seekers and, and refugees um, when I lived in the UK. And, you know, I, I used to hear the stories and um, do what I could to help mitigate some of the, you know, some of the, the impacts. Um, but you take it home with you um you know you can't hear people's stories of amazing fortitude and suffering every day day in day out and have to delve into that to understand a bit more about it 
whether that's for you know for you for your filmmaking or in in my situation was to find information so that we could get the help that they needed you can't just close your mind off to those things um and you know I used to find that I I had a, a, a long commute home in the car and I would try and kind of go through all of those things in my mind and go over those stories so that by the time I got home they they were just echoes you know in in my mind rather than front and center um but you do need to have a complete break I think to let some of those things go, they never go completely. Uh, I still remember individuals and stories from 25 years ago, you know, um, but you have to, your brain does need a break um, to be able to let those things kind of um, sort of sift away, if you like. Yes, definitely. Um, because, um, you know, obviously you can never, put your, yourself in the footprints of, of like, say, for example, the family that had their mother or father killed brutally because, and it, because it didn't happen to you, but, but, but through their pain and their anguish, you start to feel, um, whether it's indirectly, um, you, you, you do, and I don't think so you'd be human if you didn't start to feel that pain and that anguish and that trauma, you know, indirectly because, because you get so close to it as a documentary filmmaker, you know, because you get so close to it because of these in-depth long discussions with the family, um, you know, that, uh, that, that it does sort of, filter down to you and percolate or permeate within your being um and then there's all these other things that because you're also starting to research it so you're starting to read about it you you're starting to like for example i'm looking at the footage of exhumations of skulls with bullet holes in the top of the skull and you know and and things like that photos and evidence and forensic evidence and so so it would um no matter how gung ho you try to appeal it would affect you and um i'm 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 lucky that i could you know pause and 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 then say okay let's let's go to the let's go to the bush to recharge so apart from um going to the bush and running marathons, what are your strategies for staying sort of positive and optimistic and driven? Because um, you have to be driven to take on the next challenge and do the next episode and, and what have you. So what are some of the techniques that you use? For example, this year, um, I've seen how, you know, the Murder in Paris documentary in Dalcy September, what a big impact it's had even after one one would say, okay, you've done your job, it's been broadcast, it's shown all over the world, uh, move on. But I haven't moved on because the impact campaign is still running. This is now we're going into next year will be the third year. So I want to continue because I feel that these stories that I'm telling are very important for South Africans and particularly the South Africans that came in after 
1994 after our first elections and who we call the born freeze. And I think the more they know about the past, the better you know they can actually understand our history better. So I this year I turned on three of my normal jobs. Like I, I told you, I turned on a Netflix reality show, two on BBC Prime. So three reality shows I turned down because I think I'm convinced that this is the way I want to go. And even though it might have that subconscious impact that I'm not fully addressing, because I think I, I mean, you can't always go to the bush to escape. But I think if I want to outweigh it's all in terms of a balance, doing good for me and having an impact is outweighing maybe the negative impact it could be having on me as a human, you know, but I seem to control it by doing these things of doing the marathons and doing the, you know, the cycling and mountain biking and running and yeah, so so for for now that is my way of coping. But uh, but I think at some point I'd like to, because I'm reading a book now about the the trauma of the brain and how the brain reacts to trauma. Very fascinating, and it's something you can't escape. It's it's something that is is very very present, and it's not to be taken lightly. I yeah I mean that's fascinating and I'm reflecting that I have been on a somewhat similar personal journey since we last met completely different topic and you know I don't produce tv shows (laughs) so so completely different where I you know I had always cared about the environment and about biodiversity but in the last year I have come to the realization that I have to focus on it much more in my professional and personal life to try and have an impact. But in getting to that realization, I've had to really look into it all. And, you know, when you look into the state of the the planet, things don't look great. You know, that it's very depressing, actually, in terms of where we are and, and you know, how fast things might go in, in the wrong direction. And so that kind of personal impact has been almost like grief the last sort of six to eight months. And, you know, I have what I call the climate change blues, where I've had days where I I felt like that weight of knowing the weight of knowledge of something is almost like a, a kind of trauma. But the mm. the way to counteract that is to do something about it. It's a, so the, the counter to the weight uh, and the enormity is actually to have an impact and to do impact campaigns and to try and reorient what you're doing. So your you know your choice is not to do three of your other kind of normal shows in in order to focus more time and attention on the things that are going to have the biggest impact for good is a conscious choice. And you do it knowing that you won't have that relief that you get from doing that other kind of work. And that's very, very similar to the the journey that I've been on. It's really fascinating because we haven't, we've texted a couple of times, but we haven't really talked about it. And I mean, I think the way the brain seems to work at night is that it takes all of the memories and experiences of the day and it's like a sponge. And if you have a good sleep, it wrings out the sponge 
it you know so it becomes dry it becomes lighter and then the next day you can listen and hear and see and, and experience other things and it'll do the same thing every night if you have sleep and I think it's the same with rest as in taking a break going and doing something different going for a run or whatever is it's your your brain's opportunity to just get rid of some of the weight of those memories of those experiences of that knowledge to free up a little bit more time and space for absorption again so that you mm. can analyze and cogitate and do what you do, do what you need to do i do not run marathons as you well know but <laughs> i have been consciously taking breaks every day part of my technique to do a short walk in the local area or to go for a swim or even just to lie on the couch and do that kind of conscious not thinking so that my brain has the opportunity to let go of some of the the weight of that knowledge so you know we have completely different techniques and we're in completely different businesses but very similar kind of thought processes and conscious decision making exactly <laughs> yes um so what's next you've got your your next couple of episodes that you need to to film and get sorted and have you got your next project in mind or are you going to take a little break well Karen my partner said I hope the next project you undertake is going to be a little lighter <laughs> But I think I'm going to disappoint on that one. <laughs> There'll be another one that just piques your interest and that you cannot yes. resist, you know. Um, yeah. Well, listen, I think, you know, we value the work that you're doing and the and I, you know, I know that I think what you're doing in terms of giving a voice to those stories is absolutely incredible always great to chat next time we'll do a, a longer one because I'm sure we have lots to talk about rather than just a PS moment so I want to say thank you again for um, dropping in and having another another podcast conversation with us thanks very much Enver thank you for giving me the opportunity and thank you for doing the work that you're doing because I think it's really really useful and you know in terms of awareness it plays a very important part, you know, and good to you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.